Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we desire to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, Lee Pastor Daryl Anderson continues a series titled The Exodus with Part 5, Entering God's Presence. How does one enter God's presence? What does it mean to be in God's presence? Two concepts addressed in this sermon give insight into these two questions. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. Amen. Glad you're here. It's good to see you guys. We are continuing this series entitled The Exodus, where we've kind of been tracking through the story of Moses and the Israelites as they leave the bondage of Egypt and they go into the promised land. And we're, we're just trying to pull out truths and principles that we can apply to our life today. And so far, we've talked about the call. We've talked about the move, which is required if you're going to answer the call. We've talked about the fight, those things in between the here and the there as we try to move to try to keep us from the move. We've talked about the desert, where most of our everyday life uh, is lived, knowing that God is pr- very present and real even in the desert. This morning, I want to talk about the presence. And really, I'm going to start a a two-week series, if you will, a two-part sermon in this series. We're actually going to end the Exodus series next week, but this week and next week, I want to do this two-part sermon entitled The Presence. This week, lay a foundation and some groundwork and talk about entering God's presence, and then next week, we'll end it with experiencing God's presence. So to help us all be on the same page to understand which presence we're talking about, with a little bit of help of uh, low-budget theater. This is the presence that we're talking about. We're not talking about these presents. There's a huge difference between this presence and these presents. The difference basically is this. This presence is all about what God wants. These presents all about what I want. This presence is about serving God, whereas these presents are about serving self. This presence is about seeking God's face. These presents are about seeking God's hand. And this presence is all about enjoying who God is, whereas these presents are about enjoying what God gives. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with all the aspects of his presence. It's part of the deal, but the the goal is for this presence. There are a lot of people that seek these presence. There are some people who seek this presence, but it's only because they want these presence. The idea and the goal and the desire is that we seek this presence, knowing that this presence is the present in and of itself. So that's what we're talking about this morning is the presence of God. The the goal really is that our heart and our desire is like the psalmist from Psalm 42, one and two that says, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with you? See, the psalmist doesn't say, when can I go and get a bunch of stuff from you? God, when can I go and meet with you 
and be in your presence. His heart, the real gift from the psalmist's perspective was the presence of God, who he is and being in his presence. That's the heartbeat of what we're talking about these next couple of weeks is that we would have that same longing, that same desire for the presence of God. So this morning, let's start it off by laying the foundation. We're gonna be in Exodus chapter 40 as we talk about entering God's presence. And here in Exodus 40, it's, it's talking a lot about the tabernacle, setting up the tabernacle, preparing it uh, for, for, for God to be in it, to dwell in it. But there's some good application. Let's pick it up here in verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the testimony in it and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the testimony and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put in the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stands and consecrate them. And bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue for all generations to come. And Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. If you jump to verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This morning, as we talk about entering God's presence, I want to wrap it around two words, two concepts for us to remember. Consecration and habitation. So let's deal with consecration first. In chapter 19, we see that God tells Moses to consecrate the people to prepare them to see the presence of God as God comes to the mountain. In chapter 28, God tells Moses to consecrate Aaron so that he can serve as priest. These verses that we just read, verses 9 through 12, we see that God tells Moses to consecrate the tabernacle and everything that's in the tabernacle, all the furnishings. Now, this word consecrate means to be holy. We actually see the definition in verses 9 and 10 when it says consecrate it and it will be holy. To consecrate means to make holy, but to make holy has two concepts and two dynamics to it. One is to be separated from something. We see that here in verse 12 when he, God tells Moses to wash them with water. Washing with water in the Old Testament was this symbolism of cleansing, of getting rid of the impurity. So he's talking about separating yourself from something, from the impurity. But it also means to be separated to something, to be dedicated to something. We see that in verse 13 when he tells them to consecrate Aaron so that he can serve God as priest. In other words, this consecration for Aaron was not only to be washed and separated from sin, but to be separated and dedicated to exclusive use for God. 
So when we talk about being consecrated, we're talking about being separated from sin and being separated to God. Now, consecration here in the Exodus story was an external, um, outward ceremonial practice, if you will, that would prepare people to enter into the presence of God. Consecration today, obviously, um, is conducted much differently. But the symbolism that we see here is very applicable to us. Here's the bottom line for consecration. We are consecrated through Jesus Christ. We could just stop at that sentence. We're not going to, but we could stop at that sentence and consecration happens through Jesus Christ. But in this passage, we see some great symbolism and representation of really what that looks like in the context of Jesus. And in the passage, we see two symbolisms in regard to Jesus. First, Jesus is represented by the tabernacle. And to understand the concept of consecration, we have to understand this representation. Jesus is represented by the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle and everything in it was consecrated. And the tabernacle represented God's presence. As you walk through the tabernacle and you see the items in the tabernacle, everything points to Jesus. Now, we don't have time to, to, to really dwell on the tabernacle this morning. That's not the point. But let me just give you a few examples and few indicators of what I'm talking about of how Jesus is represented by the tabernacle. With the tabernacle, there was one gate, and you would enter that gate to get into the tabernacle to enter God's presence. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever wants to enter must enter through me to be saved. Once you would get in, you would see the altar of burnt offering. And this was the place of sacrifice. This is where the priest would sacrifice the offering. And as you could imagine, it would be a bloody scene because of altar, uh, sacrificing these animals. In 1 Peter, it says that we're redeemed through the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. In Hebrews 9, it says it's through the blood of Christ that he offered himself unblemished to us so that we would be saved. Hebrews 10 says we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. So this sacrifice of this unblemished lamb represents what Christ did for us. In the tabernacle, you would see the table of showbread. It was also called the, the bread of his presence. John 6 tells us, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow hungry. Next to that would be a lampstand with all the light. And the light was there for the priest so the priest could see. Without the light, the priest would be in darkness. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I've come as the light of the world so that no one who believes in me would stay in darkness. These are just a few quick examples of what we're talking about, that in the tabernacle, it all represents Jesus Christ. And the tabernacle and everything in it was consecrated. So likewise, Jesus himself was consecrated. Remember what consecrated means. It means to be holy, set apart from sin, set apart to exclusive use from God. Jesus is the consecrated one. He was set apart from sin. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every way, but was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he had no sin. So he's separated from sin, but at the same time, he's dedicated and separated to God, it was Jesus himself that said, I only do what my father tells me to do. 
I'm here doing my father's business. So what we see here through this representation is that the presence of God is through Jesus Christ. He's the consecrated one. So the Jesus is represented by the tabernacle. But at the very same time, Jesus is represented by Moses. And we've talked about this a little bit in this series. Just as Moses was the deliverer who came and rescued the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land, likewise, Jesus is our rescuer, our deliverer, the one who came to save us from the bondage of sin and death from the grip of Satan to enter us into abundant life and to eternal life. Now, in the Exodus story, we see several times where God tells Moses to consecrate something or someone. Consecrate the people, consecrate the tabernacle, consecrate Aaron, consecrate his sons. So Moses became the instrument of consecration. It's through his action and his obedience that these things were consecrated and made holy. That's represented by Christ because that's exactly what Christ has done. Through his action, through his obedience, he has consecrated us so that we too are consecrated. So here's what's interesting about Jesus Christ. Simultaneously, he is the consecrated one and he is the consecrating one. He is the one who is holy and set apart and he's also the one who makes us holy and sets us apart. He's both the consecrated one and the consecrating one. If you look in verses 12 and 13, it says that uh, God told Moses to bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of the meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments and anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. We see Moses doing three things here for Aaron. First, he's told to wash them. And again, that's this ceremonial act of removing the impurity. He's told to anoint him. We're going to talk about that a little more here in just a moment. But that's another ceremonial practice with the anointing of oil um, to empower them with, with the presence and the blessing and the calling of God. Third, he is told to consecrate them that we've just talked about to make them holy. When you look at Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ did the exact same three things for us. Jesus Christ washed us. He removes the impurity of sin. Just as 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but you were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember the story in John 13, 8, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, he tells Peter, if, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. So he washes us. He also anoints us. When we're saved, it's the spirit of Christ that he brings into our life to empower us and help us experience the blessing and the calling of God. But then third, he consecrates us. It's through his death, his resurrection, through what he did on the cross, shedding his blood, that he has consecrated us, separated us from sin, and made us holy. So we see that Jesus Christ is both the consecrated one and the consecrating one. He's able to consecrate us and make us holy because he is consecrated and he is the one that is holy. So here's the bottom line of consecration. We cannot enter God's presence without being consecrated. We cannot be consecrated apart from Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus Christ is the avenue and the door that, that allows us to enter the presence of God. So that's consecration. The second word now is habitation. And consecration prepares us for habitation. So let's talk a little bit about habitation. Consecration is all about Jesus that we just talked about, but habitation is all about the Holy Spirit. If you look in verse 9, God tells Moses to take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Verse 13 says, anoint Aaron so he may serve me as priest. Verse 15 says, anoint Aaron's sons so they may serve me as priests. This practice of anointing and the anointing of oil, the anointing with oil in the Old Testament was a ceremonial practice. Uh, it included you know, experiencing God's blessing and presence, but it was primarily a ceremonial practice that would, that would symbolize dedication and it would symbolize empowerment. An empowerment for a, a certain task or a certain office. So when we're talking about being anointed here, we're talking about being anointed for empowerment to fulfill what God has called us to do. So the symbolism for the oil all through Scripture with the anointing of oil is the symbolism of the Holy Spirit. So when we're talking about being anointed with oil, we're talking about this reference of the Holy Spirit. So the idea is that Jesus consecrates us through his death on the cross, makes us holy, but then he anoints us by bringing the Spirit of Christ into us to where the Spirit of Christ begins to reside in us and habitate in us, inhabit us, making us holy so that we can serve as priests in his kingdom. First and Second Corinthians tell us that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Second um, Corinthians and Ephesians tell us that the Spirit is given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Romans 8, 9 says that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Christ. Here's what all this is saying. When we are saved, we receive the Spirit of Christ into us, which, which, which confirms our salvation if you will. So in reality, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, we are never out of God's presence because God's presence is always in us. We always are in God's presence because God's presence is always in us. But habitation is different than occupation. When we talk about habitation, we're talking more about him just occupying space in us. See, it's possible for the Spirit of God to occupy us, but not have a full habitation in us because occupation talks about a residence, but habitation talks about an intimacy that's taking place. Next week, we're going to talk about experiencing God's presence. We're going to talk more about what, what, what all is involved in experiencing God's presence. This morning, I'm trying to lay some groundwork and foundation of entering God's presence, but I want to talk a little bit about what it means to allow the Spirit to inhabit us, to experience this full habitation. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, the way we respond to the Holy Spirit, the way we have a relationship 
with the Holy Spirit. We can respond in five different ways to the Holy Spirit as a believer. Now, I'm talking as a believer. Holy Spirit's in us, but there are five different ways that we can respond to the Holy Spirit. Four of them are bad ways. Four of them are the wrong ways. One of them is the right way that we should all desire for. So let me walk through these five responses. You can just, I'm gonna allow the Spirit just to minister to you to see how you respond to the Spirit that is in you. Here's the first response. The first relationship is this. We can abuse the Spirit. We can abuse the Holy Spirit in us. And people abuse the Holy Spirit really by just doing unbiblical things in the name of the Holy Spirit. It becomes an experiential dynamic. It becomes an enjoyment dynamic. It becomes this abuse that I'm attaching things and activities and emotions to the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with. I've taken the context and the theological dynamic and the reality of the Holy Spirit and I've applied it to stuff and I'm just going way out of of biblical context. I'm going way out of balance. Part of what the the Corinthians did, that I'm, I'm I'm abusing the Spirit and I'm beginning to use the Holy Spirit for my enjoyment rather than my empowerment. And I begin to abuse it theologically. You got to remember this is attached to this concept of anointing. And remember the anointing was for empowerment for a task. And so the filling of the Spirit is not about having a cool experience. It's not about enjoyment. It's about empowerment. The reason the Spirit is in us is to empower us so that we can glorify Him, so that we can serve Him, so that we can fulfill the task as priest for Him. The purpose of the Holy Spirit in us is to empower us to be salt and to be light and to be ambassadors for Christ, to be ministers of reconciliation. It's to empower us to go out and take the presence of God into the world so that they can experience that as well. It's not primarily for our enjoyment. It's for our empowerment. So we can abuse the Spirit, okay? Here's the second one. That is we can neglect the Spirit and we can ignore the Spirit. And some people neglect the Spirit for a variety of reasons. Some people neglect the Spirit because they've seen people abuse the Spirit. They see people over here just doing some crazy things in the name of the Spirit. They don't want to do that, so they go to polar opposite, the total other end, and they neglect the Spirit. They ignore the Spirit. They act like the Spirit isn't even God. They don't even mention the Spirit because they don't want to be accused of abusing the Spirit. So they've allowed something going on in abuse to affect what they think. Because they see theological and experiential abuse, they they may call themselves Trinitarian, but they practice as dualitarian. They believe in God the Father and God the Son, but they have just totally wiped out God the Spirit. Abuse doesn't negate the reality. And just because some people may abuse the Spirit of God doesn't negate the reality of the Spirit of God. Some people neglect the Spirit of God because all of the emphasis is on Jesus. Now, if you've tuned me out, tune me back in. Because I don't want you to hear something I didn't say. I don't want you to think I said something I didn't say. I don't want you to hear part of what I'm saying and leave thinking, Daryl's crazy, he's a heretic. 
Okay? So, so plug back in with me. Jesus, it is all about Jesus. Okay? It's all about Jesus. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He's the consecrated one. He's the consecrating one. It's through his death on the cross, through his blood, that we are saved. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can enter the presence of God. It's without Christ, we are without hope. We are without life. It's, it is all about Jesus. Don't, don't hear anything other than that. It's all about Jesus Christ. But it's the Spirit of Christ that indwells us, not the body of Christ. And the, the, the deity and the place and the work of the Holy Spirit does not negate the deity and the place and the work of Jesus Christ. It enhances it. We cannot separate and say it's all about Jesus Jesus is God, so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, and it's the Holy Spirit that lives in us and dwells in us. So we can't just preach Jesus. We do for salvation and we do for consecration, but we have to understand it's the habitation of the Spirit in us that enables us to walk with Christ. So we can't neglect the Spirit. That's a bad response. Here's a third response that we can have with the Spirit. Again, it's a bad one. It's a wrong one. We can weaken the Spirit in us. Now remember, the Spirit of God, once we're saved as a believer, the Spirit of God's never going to leave you. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. It's a permanence, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You've been born again. You can't be unborn, okay? So he doesn't leave you, but we can weaken the presence of the Spirit. We can weaken the impact that the Spirit wants to have in us and through us. Ephesians 4.30 calls it grieving the Holy Spirit, which means to sadden or to, to create sorrow. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says we can quench the Holy Spirit, which means to put the Spirit's fire out, okay, to weaken the impact of the Holy Spirit. For me, it, to, to use this example, it's, it's like being in the vicinity but there's no intimacy. It's like having a stranger living in your house. I'm sure this has happened to all of you. It happens to me when you go to, to, to big group environments. But let's say you're in a, I'm, you know, I'm at a ball game, so I'm sitting in the stands, and I've got somebody so close sitting next to me that we're, we're actually touching shoulder to shoulder. But I don't know that person. I don't talk to that person. There's no intimacy with that person. I don't know that person's name. There's no real connection. I'm just very close. It's, it's easy for us when we begin to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is in us, but it's like a stranger in us. There's residence, but there's no intimacy taking place. The reality is because of sin that will allow just to reign in our life, some, some mindsets that we develop that are wrong, that creates and builds up some strongholds, some, some rebellious spirit that we have in us that we're determined to do things our own way or some behaviors that we've incorporated into our lives, things that, that we allow to come into our life actually begin to weaken the impact and it begins to grieve and sadden the Holy Spirit. It begins to quench that power and that fire of the Spirit in us and it begins to weaken the impact. That's why Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit. And don't quench the spirit because what happens, it begins to weaken the impact 
that the Spirit wants to have in filling us with his presence. Here's the fourth response. It's another bad one. And that is we can restrict the Spirit. In other words, we don't give him full access. Some of you may be familiar with uh, a little pamphlet that a guy named Robert Mungor wrote. And it was entitled, My Heart, Christ's Home. And it was, it was an analogy, if you will, of just like you would let somebody into your house and then you would give that person permission to go into every room of your house. He used that illustration as our heart. And when we allow the Spirit into our heart, we would then give him access into every chamber of our heart, every room in our heart. The, the reality is we can restrict the movement of the Spirit, and we restrict the Spirit when we don't give Him full access to everything. In other words, it's as if, symbolically, we say, God, there are certain places in my heart that you're not allowed to go. I'm going to shut that door. I'm going to lock that door. I'm going to put a do not enter sign on that door, and you cannot go there. There are aspects of my behavior. There's access of my life. There are issues going on. There are relationships that I have. There's all this stuff that's part of who I am that you don't get access to that. I'll let you be in this part of my life, but not in the other parts. And we begin to restrict the movement and the work of the Holy Spirit. All of that leads me to the fifth response, which is the response of full habitation. And that is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We know in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that it says very clearly, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And really what that's talking about is an ongoing invitation for full habitation of the Spirit. That the Spirit simply does not reside in me because I'm saved, but there's intimacy taking place with the Spirit, that there is full permission to go into every part of my heart, every aspect of my life. It's where we take down the do not enter signs. We unlock the doors. We open those doors and we say, God, you have permission to move into and work and alter and change and redecorate and redesign and get rid of whatever you want to do in every area, every aspect of my life. I'm giving you full backstage access. I'm giving you full permission to fully indwell me. Here's the deal about being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is not about getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit getting more of you. It's about you allowing the Holy Spirit to invade you and invade every aspect of your heart, every area of your life. You want him to have complete control of your life. When that happens, we experience full habitation and then we experience full empowerment because remember, it's all about the anointing. And so when Jesus Christ places the spirit of Christ, his own spirit, God in us, it's to empower us so that we can live the life that God has called us to. It's so that we can be priests unto God, that we can serve him as a royal priesthood, part of a holy nation, that we can go out into the world and be light and be salt and be used by God for what he's called us to do, which is to go out and glorify him and impact the world for Jesus Christ. That's the goal of this anointing and this habitation 
is for empowerment. Yes, we do get to enjoy these presents too. It comes as part of the package. But that's not what we desire. What we desire is this presence. Because in the presence of God, that everything changes, that everything comes to life, everything makes sense. So I have two questions for you this morning. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you allowed him to consecrate you and make you holy through his death? And if you have to think about this morning and say, no, I I don't think I have, I'm going to implore you that in a moment when we stand and sing and worship some more, we'll have some prayer partners in the back and here at the front. I'm available in the front. If, If you can't say for sure, yes, I know I've given my life to Christ, then I want you to come find one of us and say, I need Jesus. But if you're here and you know Christ, second question is, are you giving the Spirit of God full habitation in your life? Are you guilty of abuse or neglect or restriction? Are you allowing Him full access? Let's pray together. Thanks for listening. We truly hope that you are blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org.